This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. After years of consultation and years of regional dialogues between Aboriginal people all over the country, in 2017, the Uluru Statement from the Heart was gifted to the Australian people. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. Only for it to be immediately dismissed by the Turnbull government, citing a baseless claim that a voice would act as a third chamber of government. But last week, during an historic speech at the Gama Festival, Anthony Albanese made good on an election promise. Today I reaffirm my government's solemn promise to implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. Pushing forward with a referendum on a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice to Parliament and asking the Australian people a simple question. Do you support an alteration to the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? A straightforward proposition, a simple principle, a question from the heart. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Indigenous Affairs Editor Lorena Allam about the long road to a voice to Parliament. It's Friday, the 5th of August. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Lorena. Morning, Gabs. I'm talking to you from beautiful Darwin. I'm actually sitting in a friend's garden. You can hear a lot of birds and and, uh, dogs walking past (laughs) in the background. And you've both just got back from the Gama Festival, where Anthony Albanese made a speech that had quite an impact. Lenore, what did he say and why did it strike such a chord? Well, he announced that the government would be putting a question to the Australian people to change the constitution to enshrine a voice for Indigenous Australians. And then the three proposed changes to the constitution, which he said might change a bit, but this is how they were thinking about it. One. There shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Two, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And three, the Parliament shall, subject to this Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. You know, he was nailing his colours to the mast. He was actually doing it. And it was significant because after so many years and so much discussion, he was a leader standing up and saying, I'm going to do this and giving a heartfelt, very passionate speech explaining exactly why. I am determined for us to succeed in this great project and working together with humility, with hope, I am absolutely sure that we can. Thank you very much. And I guess that means that he's invested a lot of political 
capital in it. And I don't mention that because it's the most important thing. Obviously, the most important thing is what this will mean for Australia and for First Australians in particular. But I say it because when Prime Ministers invest that much capital in something, when they elevate it to such an importance in their Prime Ministership, you know they're going to do everything in their power to try to make it happen. So I think that's what was significant about it, what he said, but also the way he said it and the commitment he put behind it because whatever happens from now on, I think we can rest assured that he's going to do everything he can to make this happen. Lorena, how did we get here? What is the Uluru Statement from the Heart and how did that come to be? I think around 2008 is probably a good place to start, which is when John Howard decided that recognition in the Constitution might be something he'd be willing to to look at if he were re-elected. And of course, we know he wasn't. But the principles around recognition took off and people started discussing that as a possibility. Over the years, that turned into the Referendum Council. This is a long and complicated history. It's littered with a lot of government inquiries and investigations, a lot of reports, a lot of meetings by First Nations people. But the Uluru Statement from the Heart itself came from the culmination of those dialogues. A meeting was held at Uluru at which the statement was presented and signed by, you know, hundreds of traditional owners from around Australia. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country and we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. And in it there was a clear call for three things, a voice to parliament, a treaty among uh, First Nations and the colonisers and a process of truth-telling, voice, treaty, truth. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. You can read the Uluru Statement online and it's it's a simple one-page document, but behind that is a lot of work, a lot of thought and a lot of conversations among experts in constitutional law who have drafted uh, a series of principles by which a voice might be governed. And that's what's behind the Uluru Statement from the heart. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia. And what we heard at Gama from those campaigners was that Albanese's speech very much echoed all of the things that they had been recommending. It was almost identical to a form of words and a suggested question that they had put forward in 2018. So when people say that, you know, this is a huge step forward for the Albanese government, it absolutely is. It's a huge step forward for the Australian people. But for those campaigners, it is an acceptance, a recognition that somebody has finally listened to what it was that, that they had to say. And I guess we could even go back further than that. You know, there was this moment after Anthony Albanese's speech where he was he was touching um, Galloway Yunipingu's hands and they were talking quite softly and there's been various kind of accounts of what they said. I think The Australian reported that Galloway asked Albanese, are you serious this time? And Albanese said, yes, we're going to do it. We were told that he'd said, can I hold you to your word? And Albanese said, absolutely. Now, I don't know which of those is true or whether either of them is true, but Clearly there was this moment and it was important because Galloway was one of the leaders who presented the Barunga Statement to Bob Hawke who promised a treaty and then didn't deliver it. And that was like a respectfully worded request in, in a similar vein. I just think there's this generation of Indigenous leaders who have been waiting like a lifetime for Prime Ministers to make good on these kinds of promises, which, 
you know, which sort of added import to the whole occasion. And I think that's why the stakes this time around are so much higher because Albanese has quoted Hawke in his speeches. He was referred to Keating's Redfern speech. He said as much at Gama that the past is littered with broken promises is what he said. Mm. And Gulleroy was one of the two leaders alongside Winton Rabunja who presented Hawke with the Bark petition. Hawke promised a national land rights legislation. It never happened. So, you know, for Gulleroy, who has spent his life uh, campaigning for the rights of his people, to have this endless kind of procession of prime ministers come to his land and make these sorts of promises, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an exchange like that that took place after the speech. Mm. But the stakes are so high and I do think that Albanese is aware of it because he acknowledged it in his speech. They really can't afford to fail. And you could tell the emotion in his voice too, right? Like he was clearly, Mm. he, he got it. So the stakes are high, but there are obviously challenges. Lenore, what are some of those challenges? There are so many. (laughs) Um, I think the challenges from here are conducting and managing this debate and getting the thing passed. There has to be a debate. There should be a debate. There should be a discussion. There's going to be differences of opinion. This is a really consequential change. I think the most difficult thing to negotiate will be how much detail about the voice is put out by the government or or the government sort of holds itself to ahead of the referendum question because that's all going to be legislated by the parliament after the referendum passes, obviously, because then you know whether things going to happen or not. I think the whole idea of asking for detail frustrates a lot of the Indigenous campaigners who've been working on this for a long time. They say, look, we've done all these reports that have got detail in it. But we're entering into this phase where The majority of the Australian people who, whether we like it or not, have not engaged with this at all are going to get a vote on it. And so they need to be brought into the conversation to understand what it is that they're being asked to vote on. And also the First Nations people of Australia need to really get what it means for them, how they will be represented, what power it will give them. So there's this debate that has to happen. But I think the trick for people who want this to succeed is to be careful about this question of detail because we know how difficult it is to get a referendum to pass and we know that, you know, people of ill will can use detail to pull a debate down and bog it down into, you know, nitpicking about things. Yes, we need to have a discussion and, yes, there's going to be differences of opinion, but how the government manages that question of when they you know, talk about the detail and how much of the detail they talk about is going to be really critical. And, you know, we've seen opponents come out of the blocks really quickly Mm. just since Anthony Albanese's speech and kind of fill that gap. And, you know, they have a right to their views, but some of the things that they are saying seem to me to be, you know, really kind of fatuous, like the idea that this is somehow being imposed on Australians by elites. I mean, it's not. Factually and clearly and obviously, it's not. And so I think the government can't let those ideas implant themselves. They've got to really be in the space and discussing it, even though from their point of view, and certainly from the point of view of a lot of the Indigenous people who've been working on this for years, I've already discussed it a whole lot. I would say that the media has a huge responsibility here to provide the public with information 
about this. Everyone's got an opinion already, and I think we're about to enter a phase where everybody will become a constitutional law expert. Mm -hmm. Brace yourselves and it will be tedious. (laughs) I think the media's job is to inform people, to make Australians of all walks understand what they have the power to do and why it matters and what the facts are. And so that's so important, that civic education role that we say that we play, we really have to live up to that promise during this campaign because some of the the arguments against a constitutionally enshrined voice are, as Lenore said, fatuous. It's too important to let this turn into a a tit-for-tat game in in Canberra. It's bigger than that. And we have to remind people what their job is in a referendum, what their responsibilities are as citizens, as enrolled citizens, and, you know, hold ourselves to account for that responsibility. Albanese did make a plea to the media this week, Lenore. He said media have a big responsibility to look at and promote what unites us while recognising there are different views. But he said overwhelmingly this is an opportunity for national unity. What do you say to that? Broadly, I agree with him. It's not to say we should ignore dissenters. It would obviously not be responsible for us to do that. But I think we do need to be quite mindful of the idea of false equivalence. As I read the views in the Indigenous community now, and if you look at the opinion polls more broadly, there is overwhelming support for this concept. It's not universal. There are people who have genuine and heartfelt, you know, contrary views, but there is overwhelming support. So should we always give equal time to those minority voices of dissent against the majority voices who are discussing, you know, the whys and wherefores, but broadly agree with it. I don't think we should ignore the voices of dissent. It's up to us how much airtime we give them, what prominence we give them. And I think we should do that with an eye to how representative they are or how many people seem to hold the same views as them. You know, dissent and disagreement can often make for better copy, it often makes for better television. But what if this is really a story about consensus? Mm. Then we should report it as a story about consensus. And I think we need to reflect what we see, not give false equivalence or not allow dissent to come in just because it makes it a better story on the day. You know, we need to reflect the debate that we see. And as Lorena says, we need to inform people of the facts. And when the debate strays away from the facts, which it is already doing, Mm. then we need to say so. I was quite mm, astonished, well, maybe not astonished, I noticed that Tony Abbott entered this debate this week and said that if the body really is going to end 121 years of Commonwealth governments arrogantly believing they know enough to impose their own solutions on Aboriginal people, so he's quoting the Prime Minister there, is obviously going to have to have something approaching a veto over decisions the Parliament might otherwise make. No, it's not. Nobody's saying it has a veto. No, it's not. That's a former Prime Minister injecting something into the debate that just is clearly not true, and I think we have a role in saying so. Mm. Couldn't agree more. We can't get caught up in the the day-to-day exchanges, but where there are errors of fact like that, it it is absolutely worth Mm. and it is our job to to call that stuff out. I think it's really, really important because as a former Prime Minister, his comments carry weight with certain sectors of the community and it's dangerous for, for that to go unchecked. 
And there are people who are clearly trying to turn this into a culture war. Mm. You know, there was one commentator this week saying, oh, this is like Brexit. No, it's not. It's not like Brexit at all. We just can't let that kind of irresponsible commentary fill the void. Yeah. It would be remiss of us, as, as the norm mentioned, minority voices and dissenting voices. There are dissenting voices in the Aboriginal and Islander community about the voice as well. And that reflects a conversation that needs to be had with us and about us and by us in our communities where we get to understand what the voice is all about. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't, un- who don't understand or have apprehensions about this who would rather have a treaty first. Once it's explained that how treaty processes can take years. We were speaking to a Haida chief at Gama whose people have negotiated a treaty with the Canadian government in BC that took 15 years and he said and they're still not done. Mm. Pat Anderson from the Uluru Dialogues yesterday told me we haven't got any more time to wait. She said I'm really, I'm old, I'm in my 70s, a lot of the Aboriginal leadership are the same age. We, we don't have time to wait to negotiate treaties. We want this to happen now so that we can use it as a foundation for the next phases of the treaty truth process which, you know, in a way are going to be more challenging and more difficult for the country. I mean, in one way, a voice is the easy bit. There's a lot of talk that will be had in the community and I take some heart from Linda Burney's comments as the Minister for Indigenous Australians. It is going to be a body that we will consult with, you and everyone else, on what it will look like and how it will operate. She wants to have those conversations and go out and talk to as many of our mobs as she can to help them understand what The Voice is all about. That is not the decision of politicians. This is something for you and the Australian people. A final question to both of you. I'll start with you, Lenore. Is this achievable? Yep, it has to be. Lorena? Yes, it is. I think um, the polls already show that over 75% of Australians polled support a voice to parliament. If you were to ask people, leaving aside all of the opinions and all of the the speculation, if you were to put to the Australian people, do you support a voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution? Yes, no. I think that it would succeed. And it has to. Albanese said at Gama, more of the same means things will get worse. 121 years of Commonwealth governments in Canberra arrogantly believing they know enough to impose their own solutions on Aboriginal people have brought us to this point. This torment of powerlessness, a life expectancy gap of 20 years, some of the worst incarceration rates in the world, a broken system that burns billions of dollars and delivers precious little for the people who are supposed to be able to trust in it. And if governments simply continue to do the same thing and insist they know better, then things will get worse. We've had almost 10 years of a government that has wound back funding in Indigenous affairs. The closing the gap targets are getting worse and worse. The same is not working. If not now, when? If not now, when? So let's try this. Let's try this. What have we got to lose? The voice 
of the Australian people will create a voice to parliament. Next, unfair questions and unidentified debris. What story can't you get out of your head, Lenore? I have been really taken by a series of stories that Luke Enrique Gomes has been writing about job agencies who refer clients to courses that they just happen to also run, which look to be or appear to be really completely useless. Um, so the one story he wrote this week was about an, a technology course which taught people things like click on the button that turns the monitor on and off, which maybe if it was a job seeker returning to work who had absolutely no idea about technology, maybe, but the person that was forced to go and do this course to maintain their benefits was a tertiary graduate who'd worked in sport and media and who therefore obviously already knew how to turn a monitor on and off and who ended up having to go and pay for his own course that was relevant to his skills in order to get himself a job. And, you know, joke's on us. We pay for all of this. This is all taxpayer-funded courses for these companies. And I think Luke's investigations are really useful and good. Lorena, what stuck in your mind this week? The story that I just can't stop thinking about is the three pieces of space junk that landed in a sheep paddock in the snowies during the week. I mean, I learned mm. a lot of things by reading this story. One, that we have international space laws. I mean, obviously, of course we do, but I'd, I'd never thought of them before. And I wonder who's an international space law expert. It's a very sort of Star Trek type thing. I also learnt that we have an Australian government space re-entry debris plan, <laughs> which is fascinating. I mean, it, there's a protocol for what happens when, when space junk lands in your sheep paddock. Um, but it, there's also a three, there's a 10% chance that someone on Earth can die from being hit by space junk these days. And four, the fourth thing I learned was the Australian gift for understatement is uh, alive and well. So the bloke who, Jock Wallace, who found this three-metre chunk of debris wedged in his paddock, um, he called CASA, uh, the Civil Aviation Authority, uh, to report it. And they said, well, ring NASA. And he said, I'm a farmer from Dalgetty. What am I going to say to NASA? <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Lorena. Thanks, Gabs. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and that includes Spotify. You can find us on a playlist there. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Dan Simo. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. We'll be back with you on Monday. See you then.